I'll invite you this morning to open up your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 12. And last time we got through verse 12 of chapter 12. So we'll be picking up in verse 13. And we are only going to get through chapter 13, verse 10 this morning. So we'll get about halfway through chapter 13. If you remember at the beginning of chapter 12, John specifically mentioned that what he was describing were signs or symbols. These are visions that he was given and they serve a specific purpose. They're using symbolism to show him things that would come to pass in the future. In the first roughly two-thirds of chapter 12, we saw several personages represented in our text, and these personages were present in John's vision. We saw the woman, who we identified as the nation of Israel, the male child, who we identified as Christ, the dragon, which the scripture explicitly identified for us as Satan, or that serpent of old. We saw the stars of heaven were angels, and in this case specifically, they were fallen angels. We saw Michael, who was simply Michael the archangel. And this vision is, in effect, a partial fulfillment of God's promise in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman, that is the progeny of the woman, is at war with the seed or the progeny of the serpent. And this war has drug on throughout history, up to the present day, and it will continue after today. Satan was waiting for the child to be born, Jesus Christ, so that he could strike him down and foil the plans and the word of God. War in heaven and Satan and his angels being thrown out and cast down to earth. We saw all of this in chapter 12. And Satan, knowing that he has but a short time, he knows that his days are numbered, and he's coming ever closer to that time when he will be disposed of. And this brings us in our timeline to the midway point of this tribulation period. And it's at this point that the Antichrist, this man of sin, is going to set himself up in the temple of God to be worshipped as God. Daniel, in chapter 9, refers to this as the abomination of desolations. And this is when the Antichrist sets himself up to be worshipped as God. And this action is going to be the trigger It's going to be the alarm that goes off in the minds of the Israelites that tips them off to the fact that they've just been deceived. They have willingly accepted this man as their Messiah, the Antichrist. He's a pseudo-Christ. He presents himself as the Christ, and they accept him. But when this event takes place, The Antichrist sets himself up as God in the temple that will alert the Jews that they've been deceived. That event will also trigger their flight into the wilderness. And we'll look at that here in the the last part of chapter 12. So let's read the rest of this chapter, 
starting at verse 13. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she may fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Verse 13. Now when the, woman dragon, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child, Jesus Christ. The dragon was enraged. One, that the child had been born. Then he thought he had won when he got that child on the cross, when the child had been killed. Then he was enraged again when he realized, well, in fact, I messed up pretty bad. He turns his attention now to the woman who gave birth to that child. The child was taken off of the earth. The child is in heaven with the father. Satan can no longer come against Jesus Christ. So he comes against those that represent him. And specifically here, we see that the nation of Israel represents Christ. Did Satan persecute the church? Yes, he did. Sure. But that's not his focus here. And the church isn't the focus in this vision. It's not mentioned. Verse 14, But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, that she may fly into the wilderness to her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Two wings of a great eagle. There are a few references to eagle's wings in the Old Testament that are worth noting. And from these few references, we can infer that verse 14 is talking about Israel being whisked away to safety in the wilderness. Supernaturally carried out of harm's way. You don't have to turn here to these references, but you may jot them down if you want to. Exodus 19.4 reads, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. This is God speaking to the Israelites. God himself compares his deliverance of Israel from Egypt to bearing them up on eagles' wings. Deuteronomy 32, 11, and 12. As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings. So the Lord alone led him, and there was no foreign God with him. And this is speaking of Jacob, and by extension, Israel. An eagle is used to describe how God cared for them. Isaiah 40, verse 31. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. 
They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. And now in our text, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, and this on eagle's wings. It's a supernatural preserving of the people. Even in Matthew 24, 16, Jesus says, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And he's talking about this same time period, the same event. When Israel realizes she's been deceived, she takes her place in the wilderness to be sheltered by God from the serpent, from Satan. Where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Now, for the sake of review, remember that this time, times, and half a time represents a period of three and a half years, 1260 days, 42 months. We see that time period specified many, many times throughout Scripture. God cares for his remnant for three and a half years in this place of the wilderness. And we know he took care of about 2 million, give or take, Jews for 40 years in the wilderness, way back when, when they were coming out of Egypt. So a little under 200,000, I don't think is going to be a big problem for him to take care of for three and a half years. Verse 15, so the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. So the serpent hates the woman. He's trying to get rid of her as desperately as he can. So he sends this flood after her. And you'll see different explanations as to what this flood represents. Some would take it as a literal flood with water that was sent to destroy the Israelites in the wilderness. This is certainly possible, and I don't see any problem necessarily with this interpretation. But you'll see others take the flood as an army that's sent to wipe out the Israelites. If it's an army, it would certainly be operating under the Antichrist's orders. And this interpretation stems largely from Isaiah 59.19's use of flood to describe an invading army. Isaiah 59.19 says, So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun when the enemy comes in like a flood. So we see this connection of a flood to an invading army. And it seems likely that this flood spoken of in verse 15 will be an army of men that the Antichrist orders to execute the Israelites. Verse 16, but the earth helped the woman. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. So God supernaturally protects his children, the Israelites, from this invading force or this flood, whichever you take that to mean. And he does so by opening up the earth so that it swallows the enemies. 
Now, that's a very specific way to deal with an invading army and a very supernatural way to deal with an invading army. But this is not the only time we see this in Scripture. Does this bring back any remembrances for you? Moses and Korah. The rebellion of Korah in Numbers 16. The rebellion of Korah is also mentioned in Jude 11, and there it's in reference to false teachers. And that's a little bit different perspective on that. We're going to stick to Numbers 16. Numbers 16, verse 31 and through 33 reads, Now it came to pass, as he finished speaking all these words, that the ground split apart under them, them being the enemies of God. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the men with Korah with all their goods. So they and all those with them went down alive into the pit. The earth closed over them, and they perished from among the assembly. That seems strange to us. And, you know, I, I don't disagree that that is strange. But this rebellion of Korah has some other similarities that we can draw to this invasion by the army of the Antichrist. So we'll look at that real quick. So obviously, the earth swallowed up the enemies of God in both of these instances. But also in both instances, a group of men came against God's chosen people. In Numbers, Korah and his company of men were angry with Moses that God had chosen them to lead the Israelites. He was jealous. They all wanted to take the place of Moses as holy people. And in the tribulation, the Antichrist will set himself up in the place of Christ, trying to supersede the chosen one of God. We see the correlations here. God intervenes in both instances by opening up the earth to swallow up his enemies and protect his chosen ones. I think it's also worth mentioning, though I'm not going to draw any hard and fast conclusions about it, that Numbers specifically says, so they and all those with them went down alive into the pit. That's an interesting choice of words, I think. Uh, We know that the Antichrist will be cast into the pit and then into the lake of fire. Verse 17, and the dragon was enraged with the woman, I have no doubt, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So Satan is enraged at the successful defense of this attack. It says, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. And this phrase is very telling and it takes us all the way back to Genesis 3.15. And it may help to read it in the King James Version, which reads, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. The seed of the woman. The remnant of her seed makes reference to this remnant of Jews that will survive the tribulation. 
those 144,000 sealed servants of God. And we remember from last time that this remnant is important to God's plan. They will call on the name of Jesus before he comes back. Satan knows, and if I can exterminate this group of supposedly protected people, they cannot call out to Christ to come back and God's plan will be thrown off. So he tries as best he can to get at them, but he cannot. And he will keep trying until his chances are up and then he will be defeated. This is the continuation of that war that broke out ages ago between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Now, I want to mention briefly uh, something about the seed of the serpent, because we're going into chapter 13, and we're going to see the seed of the serpent. So the seed of the serpent includes three main figures that we'll see in chapter 13. First is Satan himself. This is the red dragon in chapter 12 and on through 13. The coming world leader, which we know commonly as Antichrist. And the false prophet, which usually goes by the same name. We'll see in chapter 13, not this week, but next week. The false prophet is described as the beast out of the earth. That'll make sense as we get there. And these three figures seem to represent what a lot of people call a satanic trinity. It is in complete juxtaposition with the holy trinity of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We see Satan pictured as the father, father of lies. You know, he is deceptive. We see the Antichrist as the son. He is a perversion of Jesus Christ. Anti-Christ, anti-Christos in the Greek. The anti means opposed to or instead of. And this man will fulfill both of those definitions. He will be opposed to Christ, but he will also put himself in the place of Christ. And finally, we have this false prophet. This is the religious leader of this one world religion that assembles under the Antichrist. And the false prophet can be seen as the Holy Spirit who causes men to worship the Son. You see, the false prophet, we'll see in the end of chapter 13, he causes people to worship the Antichrist, to worship the beast. This is a similar role that the Holy Spirit plays in drawing us to Christ. So we see Satan's perversions, and they're all over. I mean, it's not just this. All throughout history, Satan has been taking the things of God and twisting them to fit his own purpose. Who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, this phrase makes me think that these are believing Jews. Or at least there will be a great turning of the Jews toward Christ. Because they are the ones who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony 
of Jesus Christ, the real Jesus Christ. Now, chapter 13. In chapter 13, John is going to again be treated to a vision. And this time, the vision is of two beasts, one rising up from the sea and one rising up from the earth. These beasts will represent the satanic duo that we just talked about, the Antichrist and the false prophet. We'll be looking at these persons in detail for the rest of our time this morning, and we'll actually continue to look at them next week. But before we break into this chapter, uh, I do want to mention something that's peripheral to our understanding of the passage, but still worth noting. This word beast in this passage is translated from the Greek word therion. Therion means a dangerous animal or a wild beast, a ravenous beast. In the King James Version, you'll see the English word beast used in chapter 4, way back in Revelation 4, to describe those four living creatures around the throne of God. So the same English word is used in the King James Version here and back in chapter 4. And there's a distinction that needs to be made between the Greek words that we get beast from. Here in chapter 13, we get beast translated from therion. In chapter 4, beast is translated from zoe. Zoe is simply animal. It is a living creature of some sort. Therion is much more distinct in its specifying that it's a wild animal or a ravenous beast. So we don't want to confuse what the King James calls beasts in chapter 4 with these beasts in chapter 13. They're completely different. The chapter 4 living creatures are of God. They are good beings, for lack of a better term. The beasts that we're about to read about, totally separate. These are evil, evil beasts. And they represent here the Antichrist and the false prophet. The beast is one of the names of this figure in the Bible, the Antichrist. But the most common name is Antichrist. And this name is actually only used by one author. Do we know who that is? John. Same guy that wrote Revelation, but he never uses the term Antichrist to refer to this man in the book of Revelation. He uses that term in his epistles. I've got a graphic for you that shows you the New Testament allusions to the Antichrist. And this is not an exhaustive list. This is just to get you started. And I know it's small, but there's a reason that it's small. I want to ask you a question, and I want you to answer it just to yourself. You don't have to raise hands or anything. Do you think the Old Testament or the New Testament talks more about this figure, Antichrist? The, here are your New Testament allusions, and there are some different names that he's referred to. 
Now I'll show you an Old Testament allusions graphic. There are many more references to this man in the Old Testament than there are in the New Testament. Again, not necessarily an exhaustive list, but something to get you started. Now, let's read through John's vision of this beast, this first beast, the beast from the sea. Revelation chapter 13. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his head, on his heads, a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given to him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the face of the earth will worship him, whose names who have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. And that is the snapshot that we get of this figure in the beginning of chapter 13. The end of chapter 13, which focuses mostly on the false prophet, also gives us some insight into the first beast. But we'll save that for when we come there. Back up to verse 1. I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. Now, many scholars and people who admittedly study more than I do think that because he rises out of the sea, uh, which is often used as an idiom for people, the sea, people, that this man will be a Gentile rising up out of this sea of people. So many people will identify this man as a Gentile, mostly because of this. Now, Daniel 8, 8 through 9, suggests that he is the little horn that came up out of the four Grecian horns. That makes us think that he'll be part Greek. So far, we're, we're good. Gentile, Greek. Daniel 9, 26 says, And the people of the prince who is to come, referring to Antichrist, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, referring to Jerusalem. Well, we know that the coming prince is the Antichrist. And we know that the Romans destroyed the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD. This points to him as being predominantly Roman. 
Daniel 11, 36 and 37 says that he shall regard neither the God of his fathers nor the desire of women nor regard any God for he shall exalt himself above them all. And many take this to mean he will be a Jew because he will not regard the God taking it as Yahweh of his fathers. And there is some validity in thinking he will be a Jew, but if I'm being completely honest with you, I don't see that in this verse. And here's why. The God of his fathers should read the gods of his fathers. That word is Elohim, which is plural. It's not singular. Elohim as a word that can refer to Yahweh our God, but it can also refer to many other beings, false gods. Elohim can be used to refer to either. Since it's plural, it points to false gods because there is only one true God. He will not regard the gods of his fathers. And it seems that his fathers venerated many of these little g gods. But it does make sense that the Antichrist will carry some Jewish blood. And here's a couple of possible scenarios for your consideration. He hides his Jewish ancestry to gain power among the Gentile nations, similar to how Hitler hid his Jewish ancestry. We see that as kind of showed to us in history. Or he could present himself as a Jew to gain the Jewish people's trust to further solidify his position as Messiah and then reveal that he's not actually a Jew. So he would present himself as a Jew. He would deceive them and then carry on. I think that second scenario is more plausible because the Jews are still looking for their Messiah. And they're not looking for their Messiah to come out of America. They're looking for their Messiah to come from their own people. So I think that there's some validity to that. Now, what's with all these different nationalities of the Antichrist? You know, why do we even care? Well, it seems that he will be an amalgamation of several different nationalities that represent a wide swath of people groups. Now, don't believe what I'm telling you this morning. You'll find a lot of different opinions, a lot of different interpretations for what nationality the Antichrist will be. So do your own homework. Come to your own conclusions. It's also important to note that we're actually dealing with two guys. It's this duo that we mentioned, the Antichrist and the false prophet. So it could be that these verses are referring to one or the other and their nationalities. Okay. Now, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns. The seven heads are probably a seven-nation federation under Antichrist, and the ten horns are probably the ten world leaders 
who devote their authority to the Antichrist. They, in effect, give him his power. And that accords well with other scriptures that we see in the, in the Bible, especially in Daniel. And we can turn to Daniel chapter 2. You know what? Don't have to turn there, but I'll reference it. These ten horns correspond to the ten toes of the idol in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, which is recorded in Daniel 2. And if you remember this dream, the toes were iron mixed with clay. There was some strength in them, but in the end they are fragile. This iron comes from the Roman Empire. And this last federation under the Antichrist is what's colloquially known, colloquially known as Rome II. It's the second iteration of the Roman Empire. So we see this iron representing Rome mixed with clay. Clay is fragile. And if it's not handled properly, it'll fall apart. And especially when it's mixed with something dense like iron, it makes it even more fragile. You have to almost not even touch it. Now, it will be strong for a while. But this time is carefully measured out by God. And it serves his specific purposes. It will not be in power one day too long. So the ten toes of that idol in Nebuchadnezzar's dream seem to represent the same thing that these ten crowns, these ten horns, represent. That is, the leaders of the nations. Daniel 7 is also um, going to kind of go along the same lines here. There are ten horns spoken of um, as being as coming from the nondescript beast used to describe the Roman Empire in Daniel 7. And Daniel 7 is also going to be important for our next verse, verse 2. Now the beast, which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. Three animals described here in verse 2. The leopard, the bear, and the lion. These seem to correspond to the beast described in Daniel 7. But in Revelation, they're in reverse order. The classic view of Daniel 7 holds that he was describing nations that would dominate the future world. From his vantage point, Daniel's, in history, those nations would in order be the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, and the Roman Empire. And that's the order in which he received the visions of those beasts. Each of these empires were represented to Daniel as one of these four beasts. The Babylonian Empire was represented as a lion. The Medo-Persian Empire represented by a bear. The Grecian Empire by a leopard. And the Roman Empire was represented as a beast unlike anything Daniel had ever seen before. It was this nondescript beast. He couldn't really tell you what it was, but he knew it wasn't familiar to him. But from John's vantage point in history, he's looking back at these empires 
And he's listing them in the opposite order in Revelation. But this time, the different parts of these animals are joined together to create this one very strange-looking beast coming out of the sea. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. There are pieces from each of these world-dominating empires that coalesce into this last government under the Antichrist. And this is where the idea of a one-world government largely comes from. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Now, this is very important. The Antichrist is an agent of Satan himself. Satan supplies him with his power, his throne, and his authority. Do you remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan? Satan offered him all the kingdoms of the world if he would just bow down and worship him. Does Jesus dispute the fact that those kingdoms are Satan's to give? He does not. Satan is the ruler of this world presently. The world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And Satan will choose to hand over his authority to this figure, the Antichrist. And Satan is the one who empowers him to do, quite frankly, miracles, perform signs and lying wonders. Satan chooses to give his power to this man. The dragon gave him his power. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. Now, there's a couple different ways scholars and commentators approach verse 3. First, this mortal head wound represents one of these nations that has had a fatal blow dealt to it. So it's a national picture. One of these federated nations appears to be wiped out. It appears to be all but dead when the beast, in his charming way, revives this nation and gives it back its life. This will cause people to wonder, to be in amazement. The second way to look at this verse sees it as relating more personally to the man, Antichrist. He had a head wound that appeared deadly, and his deadly wound was healed. And there are reasons why I think this is probably the more accurate interpretation of this verse. Zechariah 11.17 gives the only physical description of the Antichrist that I'm aware of in Scripture. Zechariah 11.17 reads, Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword shall be against his arm and against his right eye. His arm shall completely wither and his right eye shall be totally blinded. So here we're seeing that his right eye shall be utterly darkened from this head wound that he receives. It seems very likely that this is speaking of the same injury that chapter 13, verse 3 in Revelation is speaking about. 
It's also possible that this head wound and arm wound plays a major part in why the mark of the beast is given on the right hand and on the forehead. It's sort of an ode to the beast whose deadly wound was healed. In verse 14, it also speaks personally of the beast whose deadly wound was healed. If you go down to verse 14 in chapter 13, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. So that seems to be talking about a specific person who had this wound dealt to him. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. And of course, the world is mesmerized by this display and they choose to follow the beast. You know, our culture, even today, loves a good spectacle. You know, all across the news, social media, we're just waiting to see something cool. And when we do, we devote all of our time and effort and attention to that one thing. And I think that that's kind of what we're seeing here. They see something amazing and they just fall for it. There's a gross lack of grounding here. Verse 4, so they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? This verse tells us that Satan gets worshiped because of the beast's display, because his deadly wound was healed. At this point in the tribulation, things are openly satanic. I don't believe that there will be nearly as much deception at that point. It will be much more open. People will understand what they're doing. Now, I'm not saying that there will be no deception. Satan is the father of lies. There will always be deception on his part. But I do believe that those who take the mark, which we'll talk more about next week, will do so willingly and knowingly. I think that it will be an open mark of allegiance to Antichrist and to Satan. It's astonishing even to realize all the satanic facets in our world even today. We are inundated with it and we don't even realize it a lot of the times. They're becoming bolder in their displays. We can turn on TV and probably see something that is influenced by the wicked one. It's everywhere. And it's becoming more and more obvious. Verse 5, And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. One of the most distinct and often repeated characteristics of the Antichrist in Scripture is his mouth. He speaks great and pompous words. He is the man of sin, and he has a big mouth. 
in so many places in scripture, he's described as having this prideful mouth. And there's no doubt that this man will be able to masterfully craft his words to deceive the masses. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. There's that same time period. Time, times, and half a time. Three and a half years. 1,260 days, 42 months. His time in power is clearly marked out. It is defined, and it can't be changed. No matter how hard he works, no matter how much he wants to keep his power, his power is limited by an almighty God. He is still subject to God's ultimate authority. He won't be able to maintain his power for one day longer than God ordains. He was given authority to continue for 42 months. That's not authority from Satan. That's authority from the Almighty God, who allows him to carry out his, God's, purpose. He still serves God. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God. Isn't it crazy how God uses even his enemies to work for his purposes? He opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. Again, this guy opens his mouth. Also, blaspheming those who dwell in heaven. That's interesting. That tells us that there are, there is at least one group of people in heaven at the time this is taking place. You can do with that what you will. Seven, it is granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. So it was granted to him to make war with the saints and overcome them. Now, the church today tends to be a bit narrow-minded. And don't worry, I'm not going progressive on you. Let me explain. Sometimes we'll tend to fall into this habit of thinking that the only saints throughout all of history come from the church. That's just not the case. The Old Testament uses the word saints to describe saved people before the church comes around. Saints do not only come from the church. And there will be a group of saints after the church. Those who are saved through the tribulation. And verse 7 tends to be a strong point for those that hold to a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. If Antichrist overcomes the saints, then they must be separate from the church. In Matthew 16, 18, Remember this famous conversation with Peter. Jesus says that he will build his church on the confession that he is the son of God. And he immediately follows that with the fact that the gates of hell will not prevail against literally overpower his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against his church. 
So verse seven cannot be speaking of the church saints. It must be speaking of a different and a distinct group of people. Okay, well, maybe the church was still around, but Antichrist overcomes a different group of saints. We have some problems with that. The next sentence says that authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. To be a Gentile believer during the Great Tribulation means death. There's a certain number of Jewish believers who are protected through the tribulation, that 144,000 sealed servants of God. But nowhere does it speak of Gentile believers being protected from the tirades of the Antichrist. Gentile believers are not protected through the tribulation. He is given authority over every tribe, tongue, and nation. Not most of them. Every tribe, tongue, nation, except for those sealed by God. Verse 8, all who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. There are two distinct groups of people, followers of the beast and followers of Jesus Christ. There's no gray areas. There's no thinly veiled religious games to hide behind. You follow the beast or you follow Jesus. To follow Jesus means death now and everlasting life later. To follow the beast means life now and everlasting death later. You receive the beast's mark or you don't and you're put to death. You're either saved or you're not. You're either covered in the precious blood of Christ or you're filthy in your sin. And the hard truth that people don't want to hear today is that it's the exact same right now. You're either covered or you're not. Now, it's a little bit harder to tell someone's loyalties today because we don't have this mark that we take. But there are still only two categories of people. God either looks at you and sees a man or a woman covered in the blood of his son, purged from their sins, blameless, or he looks at you and he sees your sin. He sees your dark heart. He sees those things that are not in line with him. You're not covered by the blood. There's two kinds of people. In John 13, 35, Jesus says this, By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So while there's no outward mark that we take, we still can show that we are disciples of Christ by the love we have for one another. That's the one thing that Jesus points to to say, 
you can tell who's mine because of this. It's because of love. Very important to a Christian. Love is the mark of a Christian today. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. I hope that hearing this phrase kind of jumps out at you. He who has an ear, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. We saw this phrase come up in each of Jesus' letters to the seven churches of Asia in chapters 2 and 3, if you remember that long ago. But there was one difference between this phrase and the usage of it in those letters. I would like you to turn with me to Revelation 2.7. This is at the close of Jesus' letter to the church in Ephesus. And he closes the same way in every letter. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He includes the phrase, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. When Jesus is addressing the church, he says so. But that specific phrase is left out in verse 9 of chapter 13. Why? Could it be that the church is no longer being addressed? I think it's likely. When we are caught up to be with Christ, our Bibles will remain for those who will face the tribulation. They will read and many will come to Christ. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Is it possible that this is a plea to those people? Not the church, but those after the church. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Those willing to listen are reminded in verse 10 that they will be subjected to unfair treatment because of their faith in Jesus Christ. But they're also reminded that the record will be set straight in the end. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. There's a reflexivity, if you will. The record will be set straight at the end. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. This calls for the patient endurance, the hippomony, on the part of the saints. And even today, we face trials of many kinds. It's not the great tribulation, but we face tribulation. And we are exhorted many, many times in Scripture to bear up under these trials. These trials are allowed by God, and they're allowed by God so that we are refined into the image of His Son. Sanctification. It feels like the pressure of a ton of bricks sometimes when you're in the middle of this trial. But he will provide what you need 
to press on. All we have to do is look to him and he will provide. We can't provide what we need all on our own. I think I said it very recently, but it's applicable again. So I'll say it again. It bugs me to no end when people say that God won't give you more than you can handle. Because he will. And he does. Over and over and over. But he does so, so that you will lean on him. So that you will look to him for strength. Not look to yourself. If you can handle everything that is thrown at you, why do you need him? He wants you to want him. He will earnestly seek those who seek him. Amen. Let's close our study this morning in a word of prayer. Thank mm-hmm. you.